All right, take a Bible out. Find the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. If you'd like to follow along with notes, sort of an outline of what we're discussing, that's available in the bulletin. Our series this month is called Give Thanks. We're trying to prepare, obviously, for Thanksgiving. We're just sort of asking the basic question of how should we be thankful people? I think that if I said to you, this is the month you should be thankful, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, we all sort of instinctively feel like we know how to do that. And what's interesting to me is sometimes when you turn to the scriptures and you see how people gave thanks in the Bible, it just looks a little bit different than the way you and I tend to give thanks. And so that's sort of what we're thinking about. I want to share with you a quote from a guy named D.A. Carson. If I had to pick two or three authors that I could only read their books uh, forever and evermore and had to cut everybody else out, this would be one of the guys that I keep. He's super, super sharp. He's from, from Canada, so don't hold that against him. He served as a pastor for many years, and now he's a professor at a major uh, theological institute in the Midwest. And I just want to, to share with you something he says about giving thanks and being thankful. Look what he says. By and large, our thanksgiving seems to be tied rather tightly to our material well-being and comfort. The unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. If a large percentage of our thanksgiving is for material prosperity, it is because we value material prosperity proportionately. He's just trying to get you to think about what it is that you are actually thankful for. When you open your mouth to give thanks to God, what are the things that you're talking about? And I agree with him when he says, what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. And so in this series, we're trying to look at the Apostle Paul, and we're asking the very simple question, what did he give thanks for? How did he give thanks? Because it might look differently than me in 2016 in the United States of America saying, thank you for my car, thank you for my house, thank you for my job, thank you for all of these things that I have. And I want to give you one quick disclaimer. In this series, when we look to the Apostle Paul as a model for Thanksgiving, I want you to understand this. It's not because we're putting Paul up on some pedestal where we say Paul was the perfect prayer. Paul is the one that we want to try to be like. Listen, there's only one person in the Bible that we want to be like, and he wasn't born in Tarsus. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, right? So we're not trying to elevate Paul above Jesus, but when we look at Paul's prayers in the Bible, you understand and I understand that it's not just Paul praying, it's the Holy Spirit of God inspiring Paul to write these words down and to pray these prayers. This is how God wanted Paul to pray. When we come to the scriptures and we read these prayers in the New Testament, we don't have to wonder, well, was this a good prayer or was this a, a bad prayer? This is how God wanted Paul to pray, and we can learn from that, and we're trying to do that in this series. Let me give you a little bit of background about the city of Thessalonica, and then we'll read the passage and jump in. Thessalonica was a free city. That means the Romans sort of let them do their own thing. Not all cities in Rome were free cities. Many were governed directly by Rome. But a free city sort of got to call their own shots and do their own thing. It was a provincial capital. 
uh, a hub of government. It was a large city, several hundred thousand people living there during Paul's day, and located on a major trade highway. So you had a lot of people coming and a lot of people going. One of the neat things about Thessalonica is that many of these cities we read about in the New Testament are just ruins today, right? So if you go to Ephesus, you see the ruins, or if you go to some of these different places, you see just ruins. But you can go to Thessalonica today, and it's a thriving city, well over a million people, one of the the major economic powerhouses in Greece. I know those two things don't seem to go together, Greece and economic powerhouse, but just imagine what they would be without this city, okay? It's a big-time city. Lots of people live there. And a lot of the historical things are still there, but it's just still today a thriving city. Paul, he visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He had just been to Philippi. And you remember in in the book of Acts how that went in in Philippi. He met Lydia, and she became a believer, and he cast a demon out of the slave girl. And we have good reason to believe she sort of joined this Christian movement. And then there was the Philippian jailer who got saved in his family. And all these people sort of mismatch of people coming together. And Paul had to leave because of persecution. And his next stop was Thessalonica. He loved the church in Thessalonica, but he didn't get to stay there long either. Because a riot broke out when he started preaching, and they sort of sent him on down the road on this missionary journey. But he was concerned about them, and he cared about them, and so he wrote back letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, to this church. Our passage is 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10, but I also want you to understand that Paul gave thanks for this church in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And in 3.9, you can look up those prayers. We're not going to look at them this morning, but you can study them later on your own. And you can also flip through the book of 2 Thessalonians, where Paul gives thanks for this church several times. This was a church, Paul wrote these two short letters over and over and over and over again. He keeps coming back to this idea of giving thanks for them. I'm thankful for you. He wasn't there very long. He didn't stay there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, but he loved these people and he thanked God for them. And it's interesting to study his prayers. One last thought is this. When Paul is giving thanks for these people, he's modeling what he called them to do in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 to 18. Those verses say, pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. That's what he wanted them to do. And as he's writing these letters to them, he's doing what he's asking them to do. So there you go. That's a little background. Look in your Bible, and let's read these verses beginning in verse 2 down to verse 10. The Word of God says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Lord, as we take a few minutes this morning to look at this old prayer. We pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth, not only in this text, but also in our hearts. Father, and if we spend most of our time giving you thanks for material things, for financial prosperity, for our physical blessings, Father, convict us of that this morning. It's not that we don't want to be thankful for those things, but it's that we want to be thankful for the right things and in the right way. So we pray for wisdom this morning, and we pray for it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Really simple this morning. Really simple. One question, and then we'll end with application. The question is this. Why did Paul give thanks for this church? And I want you to see a few ideas. Number one. Paul gave thanks for these believers because God's grace impacted every area of their lives. God's grace impacted every area of their lives. Look at verse 3. He says, after we're giving thanks, we're mentioning you. He says, verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, Your work of faith, we remember the relationship that you had with the Lord. That's a horizontal relationship. Then he says, we also remember your labor of love. And the Greek word he's using there for love is talking about love for brothers and sisters in Christ, for other people. So We remember vertically your faith in God. Remember the love that you had for other people, a horizontal love. And then he says, we also remember your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We remember how you loved God and how you loved people, that it was filled with hope. That was the emotion that drove it. Remember your relationship with the Lord, your love for other people, and the hope that filled your lives. And I think what he's saying when he combines those three words is he's saying, look, it's obvious to us that God's grace captured all of who you are. God's grace had a change, an impact, made a difference in your vertical relationship with him, in the way that you related to other people, and in the way that you expressed yourself, the way that you go about your daily lives. It was hope-filled. And here's what's interesting. All throughout the New Testament, you find those three words, faith, love, and hope, combined in multiple different passages. I'm just going to show you a few of them. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three. Look at this next one, Galatians 5. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Look at the next one. This is from Colossians. This is the prayer we're going to look at next week. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Vertical, faith in God. Horizontal, your love for all the saints and this hope that's driving you forward. First Peter 1. God raised him from the dead and he gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I think this is Paul and Peter just sort of looking for words and the Spirit of God inspiring them, saying, look, God's grace is designed to impact every area of your life. Vertically, your relationship with him. Horizontally, your relationships with other people have to be impacted by by God's grace in your life. And your emotions, your demeanor, your motivation is driven by hope. The problem is for us in the United States is that many times we allow faith to sort of get compartmentalized into one little corner of our life. As I've gone on mission trips around the world, I come back sort of convinced and convicted that we do this more than anybody else on the planet. We sort of in this country have compartments where we put everything in our life and we try to kind of keep those things separate. So we have a a compartment over here for work and work, we put it that here. And then over in this part, we have family. And over in this part, we have our hobbies, our favorite sports teams. And then over here, we have church, Jesus. And we just kind of try to keep those things separate. And I'll give you a few examples of why I think that this is the case. When we lived in a previous town, I was a member of Rotary, and we had lunch every Tuesday for Rotary Club, and we would have guest speakers come and share with us, and we would do projects in the community. And one of the things we did almost every week is we had high school seniors. They loved it because they got to leave campus, and they would come eat with us, and they got to miss a class or two. So they would come two or three seniors a week and be part of the Rotary meeting. And when they would come, before they came, they had to fill out this big piece of paper, and the big piece of paper kind of was a bio. Who you are, what do you do, what are you involved in, what sort of hobbies, clubs, school activities, all that stuff. And I was one of the younger guys in Rotary, so a lot of the times I found myself sitting with these high school kids at the lunch, and the you know, boss man of Rotary would say, hey, why don't you introduce them? So he'd give me the piece of paper, and i stand up, and i say, okay, this is Jane Doe. And i start reading through her bio, And it sort of reads like this. She's in uh, science club, and she's in band, and she's in the chess club, and she's in this organization and that organization and National Honor Society, and she goes to such and such Baptist church, and she likes to do this, and she likes to do that. And it was just sort of one thing in with the list, just right there with all the other stuff. And here's the thing. This is a smaller community. So I knew most of those kiddos. And I knew their families. And when they put on their bio, well, I'm part of such and such group, I knew if they were or they weren't. And more often than not, they weren't. There was a lot of times I introduced those kids and they said, I'm a member of First Baptist Church Youth Group. And I, as the pastor of First Baptist Church, just wanted to say, no, you're not. But in their mind, it's just one more thing. You just tack it on your resume. You tack it on your bio. This is what I do. It's just an activity. I have this one and this one and this one. And here's another one that I have. It's not just high school kids. I don't want to just throw high school kids under the bus. It's adults. And it's not just small town rural Oklahoma. It's Odessa, Texas. If you went around our town this afternoon or this week and you just surveyed people and you just said, Where do you go to church? I think, and I could be totally wrong, been wrong before a time or two. I think most people would give you an answer. I think most people would not say we don't go anywhere. And I think most people would not say, well, I don't go right now. I think most people would tell you, I go to such and such. And I think you'd find a high percentage of people that would tell you, I'm involved 
in such and such place. But then if you went on a Sunday morning and you counted up all the heads and all the churches in Odessa, Texas, you said, how many people were there compared to how many people said that they go and they're a part? I think you'd have way more people who would say to you, I go to such and such, and way fewer people who would actually be there on a Sunday morning. You say, well, some of them were sick. Okay, some of them were sick. Well, some of them were out of town on vacation. Well, okay, some were out of town on vacation. But an awful lot of them view their relationship with Jesus as one activity among many in their life. And if it works for their schedule to go on a Sunday morning and to be involved, they're going to go. But if something else comes in, another activity, well, let's just sort of swap in one out for the other. It's all the same. And, you know, I may or may not go. It's because we have this idea that Jesus, our relationship with God, our faith as we express that in a church family can be compartmentalized into one little part of our life and it doesn't touch anything else. And that's just not what Paul's thankful for in the church in Thessalonica. He says, look, God's grace has impacted every area of your life. It changes your relationship with him and it changes your relationships with other people and it changes you. He talks about their faith and he talks about their love, and he talks about this hope. Why did Paul give thanks for this church? Reason number two. He gave thanks because God loved them first. The church in Thessalonica was not a group of spiritually elite people who had their act together. It's not a bunch of people who pulled themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps. You know, we talked about Corinth last week, Paul giving thanks for the church in Corinth, and I told you there wasn't a whole lot to really give thanks for because that church was a mess. Nothing but drama, nothing but problems, but he still gave thanks for them. In Thessalonica, outwardly, things looked a lot better. They weren't suing each other in court. They weren't uh, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They weren't fighting about their favorite preachers. They weren't visiting the brothel on the weekends saying it's okay. There's a lot of things they weren't doing. And you look at the church and you say, well, it looks like they're doing a whole lot better than those guys down in Corinth. This is the kind of place. But Paul doesn't give thanks for the church in Thessalonica because they had their spiritual act together more than Corinth. He gives thanks because long before they ever knew anything about God, God loved them. He loved them first. Look what he says in verse 4. We know, brothers, who are loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's chosen you. In my Sunday school class this morning, we talked about the prophet Jeremiah. We talked about this cutesy verse that we tack onto all our favorite pictures at the Christian bookstore and sell them, and we hang them on our wall and we say, oh, he knew you before you were formed. He knit you together. Oh, isn't that great? But what he's saying to Jeremiah is, I made you, I know you, and I have something for you to do. You are going to do it. He loved Jeremiah first. Look at these other verses. This is throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 7. Moses telling the people, it's not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. Here's the reason. Why does he love you? What's the reason? It's because he loves you. That's the reason. He loves you. Not that you did anything. It's not that you were more populous or more powerful or more wise. The reason he loves you is that he loves you. He loved you first. Luke 19.10, you didn't think we were done with this verse, did you? 
The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We do not find ourselves. Jesus comes to find us. He takes the initiative. Similar verse, Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe the most clear of all of these verses, 1 John 4. In this is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Paul is thankful for this church because when he looks back at the short time he had there and he hears the reports coming from Thessalonica, he says, I know, brothers, we know that you were loved and chosen by God. Now, on a pastoral level, I talk with people and they struggle to believe that. They wrestle with it. And they say, yeah, but you don't know me You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. I just don't know that I can believe that he really loves me just because he does. That's hard for some people to swallow. And some people want to look at me and say, how can I know for certain? How can I really know that he loves me that way? Outside of the obvious answer, which is Romans 5.8, in 1 John 4.10, that he sent Jesus to die for us, to be the propitiation while we were still sinners. Here's what Paul says in chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Paul says, I know that God loved you because you received, verse 5, you received the gospel with conviction. That doesn't happen unless God's grace has been poured out into your life. People left to themselves in their sin don't receive the gospel with conviction. But he says, that happened among you. I know that it's because God loved you. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I know that God loved you because you became imitators of the Lord. You began to look like him. You began to talk like him. You began to live like him. That doesn't happen to people apart from God's grace. He says, I know that God's loved you because you imitated the Lord. Verse 6. He says, I know that God loves you. We know, brothers, that God loves you and he's chosen you because you received the word in much affliction. You didn't just do this because it was popular. You didn't just do it because it would make your life better. You didn't do it to to build business connections in a church family. You did it in the face of great affliction. That doesn't happen apart from God's grace being poured into your life. Verse 7, look what he says. I know that God loves you because you have become examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. God's doing something in your life. He's changing you from who you used to be so that now you're an example for people. And Paul says, I know that God has loved you because that's happening in your life. It doesn't happen in people's lives unless God's grace has been poured into their life. Verse 8, look what he says. I know, brothers, that you're loved by God, chosen by God, because your faith went out. You became missionary people. Your faith didn't just stay in a building. It didn't just stay in these four walls, but it left, and it's gone out so that everybody knows. Everyone has heard. That doesn't happen. People don't do that apart from God's grace being poured into their life. So the pastoral question that some people wrestle with, how can I know that God loves me in a way that you're talking about, that is personalized just for me? How can I know that somebody else has been loved by God in that way? And Paul's answer is to say, you know that somebody has been saved by God's grace and his love when you look at their life and you see someone who has been changed by God's grace and his love. Not that somebody prayed a prayer, not that somebody got baptized, 
Not that somebody went to a youth camp or a a ladies' retreat or some event and made some decision, but you look at their life, and Paul says, I'm looking at your life. You receive the gospel with conviction. You've become imitators of the Lord. You receive the gospel in affliction, in your examples, and your faith is going out. None of those things happen unless God's grace is active in your life. And because, Paul says, I see all of those things, I'm thankful. And I'm thankful because God loved you first. Why does Paul give thanks for this church? One last reason. It's because they turned from idolatry. Verse 9, he says, you turned to God from idols. You turned to God from idols. And a lot of us read that verse and we say, well, I don't know a whole lot of people in Odessa who are worshiping statues. I don't either. But I know a lot of people in Odessa who are worshiping little G gods. May not be a physical statue on a shelf or on a counter at home, but it might be a little G god that lives in their own heart and their own mind. What does it look like when somebody turns from idols and turns to God? Paul explains it. Look what he says. You turn to God from idols, number one, to serve. This is an active thing, to serve the living and true God. Somebody who's turned from an idol is turning to serve God actively. And, verse 10, passively to wait. What do we wait for? We wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I love the tension of what Paul says there. You people have turned from idols to God. What does that look like? How do we do it today? Easy. You turn to serve God actively. That's something you need to do. And to wait passively, knowing that God doesn't need you to do anything. So we just wait. Most of us, and I know I'm included in this, sort of specialize in one or the other. Serving God actively or waiting for Jesus Jesus passively. So some of you guys are kind of of the Martha variety, right? You're always busy. You're always doing Anytime we ask for volunteers, you're in, you're going, let's go, I want to serve, I want to be involved, I want to be connected, let's do, 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 do. And truth be told, like not throwing you under the bus, but truth be told, if you're of that variety, you have a tendency in the corners of your heart to feel like, I'm pulling my weight with God here. I got I to gotta pull my weight, I got to do my share for him. If that's you... If you're that Martha variety, then sometimes you just need to stop and wait and realize God doesn't need me to do anything. I just need to wait. I need to be still and know that he is God. I need to sit at Jesus' feet and wait for him. Others of you are more of the Mary type. You're not so worried about the dishes that need to be washed. You're just, Jesus is there and you're waiting on him. You're just sitting there, right? You're very introspective. Maybe you're a little more intellectual. These people are more take action kind of folks. You want to analyze it. You want to think about it. You want to mull it over in your head. And some of you over here, you're really good at the waiting part, but you never do anything positively, actively to serve the Lord. And if that's you, you kind of need a spiritual kick in the backside to say, get going. You got to do something. 
you got to serve. God's put you in a church family and he's gifted you, not so that you can be introspective about it, but so that you can use that gift for the common good. And somewhere in the middle there, we find some balance, right? Where we've turned from idols to serve God actively, but it's not the kind of service that puts God at our debt. It's not the kind of service that pays God back. It's not the kind of service that earns our way with him. Because we're also making time to wait and to realize everything that needed to be done has been done. Jesus said when he died, it's finished. There's nothing I can add to that. So we actively serve and we passively wait. The president of the seminary I went to, he preached a sermon back in 1993. And the title of the sermon was, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Don't just do something. Stand there. Wait. He preached a sermon 10 years later, right after I got to campus, and the title of the sermon 10 years later was, Don't Just Stand There, Do Something. And that kind of encapsulates what Paul is saying to this church. There's an active side where you serve the Lord, and there's a passive side where you just wait. That's what it looks like when you turn from idols to the true God. Now for application, two simple thoughts. How do these verses change the way that we give thanks? Number one, our thanksgiving should be centered on what is most valuable, and that is the grace of God. And I mentioned this earlier. I just mentioned it again briefly. When Paul gave thanks for the Corinthians, there wasn't a whole lot to give thanks for. What he focused on was God's grace in their life. And you remember the things that Paul said about that church? He said, look, you're a church. You're the ones that God has called out. You're saints. You're the ones that he's made holy. You're the ones that have been sanctified. You've been set apart for something special. He's not thankful for them because left to themselves, they're a mess. But he's thankful for God's grace in their life. How tempting it would be when he's praying for the church in Thessalonica to almost pray, thank you, God, for this church that gives me some relief from Corinth. These people are way better. These are the people I like to be around. These are the people who love your word. These are the people whose lives aren't in total chaos and mess. But his focus is not on the Thessalonians, is it? His focus is on the fact that God loved them first. Outwardly, did they look better than Corinth? They did. But Paul's focus isn't on the people, it's not on the gift, it's on God's grace, it's on the giver. And so in your life, you got some Corinthians, right? You got some people who are in your life that you say, these people are a total mess, wearing me out. Then you got some Thessalonians, some people that you just want to say, man, these, these guys are the best, they're the greatest. And in both of those situations, you can be thankful. It's not focused on the person but it's focused in God's grace in their lives. On the difficult people, you say, God, I'm thankful for these people because your grace has been active and present and real in their lives. And you're using me for their good and them for my good, and I'm thankful for that. And with the Thessalonians in your life, you say, God, I'm not grateful just for this person just because of who they are, because left to themselves, they're a Corinthian. But I'm thankful that you love them, and I'm thankful that you're working in their life. In both of those scenarios, he's thankful for God's grace, which he sees as most valuable. Secondly, to end, 
Our thanksgiving should be directly related to encouragement for others. There should be a connection between you being a thankful person, that's you and God, and you being an encourager towards other people, that's horizontal. Look, Paul could have kept this kind of prayer private. He could have kept it in his prayer closet. He could have kept it in his prayer journal, whatever he did. He just could have kept it to himself, and it would have been great. He would have thanked God for his grace in the lives of these people. When he was writing these two short letters to the church in Thessalonica, he keeps saying it over and over and over again. I'm thankful for you. I thank God for you. I'm thankful for you. We thank God for you. He just says it over and over and over again. He's not just buttering them up, and he's not just trying to get on their good side. He's allowing the things that he's genuinely thankful for in his relationship with God. He's thanking God for these people, and then he's going public with it to encourage them. And the gist of what he's saying in all of these thank yous is just keep doing exactly what you're doing. You're going in the right direction. Don't let anybody sidetrack you. Just keep going And I'm thankful for you because of how God's working in your life. I don't know about you, but I think for most of us, real encouragement doesn't come naturally. We might spend a month of the year sort of trying to beat ourselves into being thankful. But most of us just don't naturally go out of our way to encourage other folks. And I think someday we're going to regret that. I read a story this week about a guy, uh, he lived in England, and his nickname was the Iron Duke, first Duke of Wellington. He was a military leader. He was the guy that led the British forces against Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815 and beat Napoleon, right? He's a tough guy. He's the real deal, military man, highly respected, highly intelligent, went on to serve as prime minister several, several terms, And somebody asked him at the end of his life, just an old, hard military guy, just typical soldier, right? They asked him at the end of his life, if you could go back and do anything over, what would you do? Anything. This is a guy who's led men into battle where they died. This is a man who's served in the highest office in his nation. And he's done some pretty significant things that have impacted a lot of folks, right? And this lady says to him, in his later years, you could do anything over, what would you do? Here was his answer. You ready? I'd give more praise. And he wasn't talking about God. He's talking about other people. He's saying, if I could go back and do anything over, I'd go back and be more of an encourager. I'd build people up. I spent too much of my life tearing people down and being hard and being stern and being tough. If I could go back, I'd just give more praise to people. I think it'd be a shame for you and I to spend the next few weeks thinking about thanksgiving and only thinking about our relationship with the Lord. Only thinking about, I need to thank God for this, or I need to thank God for that, or I need to be thankful for His grace, without ever letting that thanksgiving go public for the people in your life. They might be Corinthians, they might be Thessalonians. But I think God's call for you is not only to give thanks the right way and for the right things, but to let that spill over publicly so that you become an encourager to other folks. So to that end, I want to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you're the giver of all good gifts.
And for that, we are thankful. We ask forgiveness when our thanksgiving focuses on stuff and not you. We ask for forgiveness when our thanksgiving focuses on people and not how you have acted to save people and to change people and to use people. Father, forgive us when we make the gift more important than the giver. And Father, forgive us when we keep our thanksgiving totally inside. Give us courage. Give us wisdom to know how to let that go public and to spill over so that we're an encouragement for other people even as we give thanks for them. Father, we're grateful for your word, for the example that is set, for the truth that we find, and we pray that it would impact us this week and over the next week as we get ready to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand